0: Exactly 200 years ago in Iran, a child was born whose short life and extraordinary claims sent shockwaves through his homeland, and whose influence is still being felt today. At the age of 24, Mirza Ali Muhammad of Shiraz, known to history as the Bab, meaning the gate, announced that he was the bearer of a message which was destined to transform the life of humanity. His message aroused excitement and hope among all classes and rapidly attracted thousands of followers.
1: With his call for spiritual and moral reformation and his attention to improving the position of women and the lot of the poor, the Bab's prescription for spiritual renewal was revolutionary. At the same time he founded a distinct, independent religion of his own, inspiring his followers to transform their lives and carry out great acts of heroism. The Bab announced that humanity stood at the threshold of a new era, his mission, which was to last only six years was to prepare the way for the coming of another divinely inspired educator who would usher in an age of peace and justice promised in all the world's religions. That was Bahá'u'lláh, whose teachings have given rise to the international Baha'i community, which has reached every corner of the planet.
0: For this special edition of Ponda, commemorating the bicentenary of the birth of the Bab, we're joined by the author Bahia Nachavani, whose first three novels were inspired by events and characters from the story of the Barb and his followers. Her first novel, The Saddlebag, a fable for doubters and seekers, was an international bestseller. It describes events along the pilgrim route between Mecca and Medina when a mysterious saddlebag passes from hand to hand and influences the lives of each person who comes across it.
1: Bahia Nakchivani's second novel, Paper, The Dreams of a Scribe, is an allegory centered on a scribe who's searching for perfect paper for writing his masterpiece. And her third, The Woman Who Read Too Much, is also set in Iran in the middle of the 19th century and revolves around Tahereh, a poet and scholar from Kazvin, who was the first woman to recognize the Bab and who shocked Persia by casting aside
0: her veil. Behir Nachivani, as a writer in the 21st century, what draws you to the figure of the Bab in this period in history?
2: Mm. The figure of the Barb is so fascinating because he effected closure on one period of history and he became the door or the gate, as his name means, into a new era. His mission began in 1844, it reached its heights in 1846-48, and it came to its tragic climax in 1850 when he was killed in the city of Tabriz and two years later when over 20,000 of his followers were massacred in reprisals. So you've got this extraordinary arc of a story. I was really drawn to the bar because it was something I could see, beginning, middle, end.
0: So it's the gaps in that hole of that story, the hole with a W that is, that takes your interest.
2: Yes, because when you're not a historian and you're not trying to pin down every single fact, what you're looking for is actually what's left when you pin down the facts, you see all the gaps. Mm. And I was really very interested in the fact that there was so much that was lost in the Barbie story. First of all, it was such a brief period. So much that was written in that period was destroyed. It was manipulated, distorted, lost, burned, washed away. The ink was washed off the page, and in some cases even eaten because it was dangerous to have some of these documents on you. And so we've lost a great deal. And at the same time, it's paradoxical because this is a period associated with the history of the Bab where the Bab was prolific. So you've got this figure who wrote non stop. Uh, we have stories of the number of hundred thousand verses that he wrote, the speed with which he wrote. And it became an article of proof for his revelation that he wrote so much. And at the same time, we lost so much. And there are so many things about that story we don't know. So I thought, well, jump in the gap. You can invent where you haven't read anything.
1: So the first novel that came out of this reflection on the Barbie period was The Saddlebag. Yes. What was the origins of that particular hole in history?
2: Well, there's so many of these little episodes and this wonderful sacred history that we call The Dawnbreakers I've always thought of it as a sort of thousand and one nights for the Baha'i history because there are stories inside stories inside stories and you're just looking for the chronological line and you find yourself doubling and looping backwards and picking up stories that somebody else told you of that same moment of history but coming from somebody else's point of view and it just sort of unfolds and unloops magnificently. And in the course of the early part of the Bab's life, he went on pilgrimage to Mecca And when he was travelling from Jeddah to Mecca, there is this description of a moment where he arrives close to a well, where he stops to say his early morning prayers. And as he is saying his prayers, a Bedouin appears from nowhere and grabs the saddlebag in which there are these texts that he's been writing, these commentaries, these treatises, these prayers and these meditations. And the Arab grabs the bag and starts to run off. Now the Bab is travelling with two other people. He's travelling with his last disciple of the group called the Letters of the Living. And this last individual, beautiful young man called Quddus, who recognised him even as he's walking away from him by his gate, as he says. This young man is chosen to be his companion. And the Bab is also travelling with his Ethiopian servant Mobarak, who is conducting all the baggage. So Odus is walking in front with the bridle of the camel, the Barb is on the camel, and Mobarak is behind with the mules. So we see this little group of three people moving along, and then we see them arriving as the first rays of the sun strike the earth and it's dawn and the Barb is saying his prayers. Suddenly, this character comes out of nowhere and this Bedouin Arab grabs the saddlebag and starts running. According to the history that we have, the Ethiopian servant leaps up and is about to follow him and the Barb does not stop praying, but with his hand, he beckons him back and basically tells him, don't follow. And when the prayer is finished, this is where my story got its inspiration. He turns to this dear Ethiopian Mubarak and he says, had you been allowed to follow him, you would no doubt have been able to catch him and retrieve the saddlebag. But God did not will it to be that way. Instead, the contents of this bag may reach many people that they would never have reached otherwise. And I thought, my God, that's a brilliant permission to steal. So I stole the story.
0: (laughs) So let's hear an extract from the opening chapter of The Saddleback.
2: Now this is one of the characters and he's called the Bedouin because this book is divided up into different chapters, each devoted to a particular character. And this is from the chapter called The Thief. And The Thief is this young Bedouin who has been serving as a guide to a group of bandits in the desert and he's fled. So the first day of his freedom, he lurked in the valley of treacherous dunes ahead of the other bandits. If they follow me, he thought, I will lead them into the quicksands. But they didn't follow him. On the second day, he waited on a narrow pass near the edge of a deep ravine, well hidden by a rocky range. If they follow me now, I will. Push them over the pass, and escape into the mountains, he thought. But they didn't follow him. On the third day, he came upon a lonely well, on a barren stretch of road. It was a place where pilgrims often paused, for there had been a shrine here in the old days. It was a perfect spot to pilfer from the unweary caravan before it reached the main ambush ahead. There was a roofless ruin, and an old dry well on the edge of a gully where he could hide among the rocks, and a new well gushed on the road nearby, tempting travellers to stop and drink their fill. On the fourth dawn, just as he was about to give up, he glimpsed something coming from the direction of the sacred city, something like a call from the distant horizon, an appointment with sunrise. He could see little at first. Then the watery images of early morning relinquished their meaning, and he gradually made out three figures approaching. Three notes struck against silence, the call of the coming dawn. The figures shimmered, beckoned, blurred, and then emerged at last three men on the far horizon. There was no entourage and no wealthy train, just one young man dressed in pilgrim robes, riding a camel, a youth who held the bridle of the camel and walked barefoot as if before a person of great importance, and the third was a black slave. It was the hour of morning prayer. As the Bedouin's hopes revived, He raised his tawny eyes towards the sky. Venus glimmered like a last kiss on the velvet horizon, and his heart sang with desire. His eyes grew green as the turban wound about the young man's head, while the camel approached closer and closer. And as luck would have it, the merchant stopped to perform his ablutions. While the black slave unloaded the camel, his master dismounted and approached the well. Then he washed his face and hands in the singing happiness of the waters and knelt down to pray with the youth in attendance. As he did so, he laid the saddlebag on the ground beside him. The thief eyed it greedily, his body taut as a spring. So far, so good.
1: So the contents of the Saddlebag in the book end up in the hands of various different characters who are all on this pilgrim route. I remember one of them is the Orientalists. And it strikes me, one of the things that's very interesting about the whole Barbie period and the story of the Barb is the way it captured the imagination of Westerners, especially diplomats and writers, Orientalists. And there's something of a romantic nature about the way the Barb story became translated into Western salons and academia and so on. Mm -hmm. What do you think the appeal of the Barb story was so that it captured the imagination of someone like Tolstoy even or Sarah Bernhardt, the actress?
2: Well, he does seem to come across as such a paradoxical figure, doesn't he? And I think that was one of the things that also drew me to this particular piece of history. It's the fact that you just can't resolve this enigma of the Barb. On the one hand, he's just revolutionary and he galvanizes the imaginations of his entire generation. And people are willing to fling their lives and their saddlebags of turquoises to one side and just follow him into the dark. They are willing to give up everything for the love of this young man and his his message of this new age that he's brought. And on the other hand, when you look closely at the descriptions of him, the gentleness of this figure, the mildness, the charm of his voice, the way he disarms people who come close to him, he seems to have this quality of totally taking away all motives of aggression from people and at the same time inflaming them. So on the one hand, you've got this barbarism that is unleashed as a result of what he is claiming. And on the other hand, I mean, he tames wild horses, he has wardens and guards of prisons who just melt at his feet and people just can't resist the sweetness of him. And even the Westerner who comes in contact with him, Dr Cormick, according to the story that we read in the Dawnbreakers, he's brought in in order to ascertain whether or not the Barb is in his right senses and if he isn't, then he will, his life will be saved because as a madman, you can't accuse somebody of apostasy. On the other hand, if he's considered to be of sane mind, that means he's a heretic and they can kill him. And Dr Cormick is deeply affected by this meeting and he's clearly attracted to the barb and is impressed by the teachings of the Barb, especially in relation to women, interestingly enough. He says to the Barb, he'd like to hear more about his teachings, and the Barb turns around with that absolute conviction, which in some ways can be shocking. It was certainly shocking to some of the people he spoke to when he makes this claim of who he is. On the other hand, his certitude is so convincing that you don't have any arguments against it? And he turns to Dr. Cormick and he says, I have no doubt that all of Europe will be attracted to my teachings, in effect. I mean, what a thing to say, mm-hmm. you know. So it, it's clearly this paradoxical, enigmatic, contradictory combination of qualities, which I think is endlessly fascinating and not just for his contemporaries but for us today we can't just brush him under the carpet with a whole bunch of socio-economic political explanations for him something still sticks that we can't resolve about this extraordinary human being with these capacities
0: and of course in the middle of the 19th century in britain at least you had A loss of faith in traditional religion. You have the coining of the term agnosticism in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. you have the publishing of the origin of species, and suddenly the anthropocentric conception of the world, that humans are at the center of the world, is rocked. So do you think the West was yearning for a new conception of religion?
2: I think that this hunger for this renewal, if you like, is also reflected in the fact that the West, I think, saw in the barb a Christ-like figure. There was something Christ-like even in his age. So that mildness, which is, of course, the Western interpretation of Christ, let's bear that in mind. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, it must have attracted people to get this feeling that, well, Christ has come again in the figure of the barb. You know, that's how they maybe saw it. And this is one of the things which I find fascinating, is that this period whether in the East or the West, seems to share this hunger. What is it that makes people hunger for meaning? Across the board, East and West, in totally different cultures, this great craving for meaning, that things had become too meaningless to be born any longer, and they were looking for some answers.
1: This idea of sitting on the cusp of change comes through very much in your second book, Paper, It's actually physically located on the border between Russia and Persia and this sort of crossroads of cultures. Mm. And you have this scribe who's desperately trying to work out what his role is in face of the printing press and modernity and change. And of course, the barb appears in that as well, doesn't he? He's a prisoner up in the fortress using up all the stocks of paper.
2: Yes, that's right.
1: (laughs) So was it... A natural progression from the saddlebag to move to this other interesting potential scenario that emerged out of barbie history or was it more of a struggle to find the second story
2: well you know what really fascinated me was the prolific nature of the barb and the way he wrote 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 and we know that when he was in uh marku on the border in this citadel up in the high mountain fastnesses of azerbaijan he wrote so much, he wrote the whole of the Bayan, his sacred book, and he wrote 5,000 verses or something to that effect. And my first thought very irreverently was, well, what was he writing on? I mean, you can't be a prisoner up there in the edge of nowhere and write on air. There must have been paper coming from somewhere. And so I started researching just on the basis of that question, where did he get his paper from? And I found out some fascinating things. The value of the book really lies in its chronology at the end, which is the history of paper. And I discovered that the beginnings of industrially made wood pulp paper just began at the same time as the Barb declared his mission. It's really quite astonishing that history coincided like that. Up until that point, there had been rag paper in the West, of course, and we're not talking about parchment, because that's a different technique and different material but in iran itself the tradition of paper making had really disintegrated and the paper that was being produced was very rough very coarse and they didn't have so much rag paper as they did in the west but in the west it was running out i mean rag and bone men were for that purpose gathering people's old clothes i found out they even rifled through the pyramids and stole the mummy wrappings (laughs) and brought the cloths wrapped around mummies to the eastern coast of Massachusetts, to Maine, and threw them into the papermaking vats. And there was an outbreak of cholera as a result of all these unbelievable things that were being thrown into the papermaking machine. So they were desperately looking for some alternative. And it was the Russians and the Germans that first began to industrialise wood pulp paper. So then I thought, well, that's interesting. Russia's in the north, but where did this paper come from? So I started asking, what was the paper of the Bayan? And I discovered the most astonishing thing with the help of an archivist in the Baha'i World Centre. I said, would you please tell me what a page of the Bayonne is written on? And I got this description of a very small piece of paper, and he gave me the dimensions the archivist did. The colour was green, and on the edge was the embossed word, bath. Bath! (laughs) So then I thought, English paper? (laughs) Where did that come from? And then I realised, of course... The Bab was a merchant from the south of Iran and he must have had access through Boucher to the trade routes from India. And he was getting paper that was from India, that was English paper. He wrote the Bayan on English paper. I was just so stunned by that. Anyway, so it wasn't so much on the borders that was interesting me. But it was where did the paper come from mm. that was my inspiration. As he crossed the courtyard, he saw that the door behind the pulpit was still ajar. He lingered to catch the cool air stirring from within, for the mosque walls were thick, the ceiling high, and the little row of windows under the circular dome caught the evening breeze. He longed to press his hot cheeks against the cool plaster. The curfew sounded mournfully. It was unlikely that the Sufi would return that night. But when he stepped inside, he felt as if he'd entered uninvited into someone else's home. The familiar room looked alien. He stood stock still in the unaccustomed obscurity, waiting for the sunlight to set behind his gloried eyes, and then glanced around the mosque nervously, with a growing constriction in his chest. The scribe stepped closer to peer at the Sufi's belongings. One of the large sacks humped on the other side of the pulpit was open. The jute sacking wrapped in four knotted corners to protect the baggage from the dust of travel had been untied. The contents were tantalizingly close, concealed under a single fold. He hung there, indecisive irresolute for a moment, and then reached forward to turn back the flap. The sack was filled with paper, reams, quires, and folios of paper, pale as pistachio nuts in the crepuscular light, delicate as a breeze in the sultry air, exquisite. The scribe gaped at the reams before him, paper was subtle, elusive, and entirely blank. Each sheet was impeccably trimmed and as wide as a hand span of hope. Each page was no longer than belief and as cool as the human soul. At that moment he heard a faint sound behind him, a dry cough rustling at the northern entrance, and the stab in his wrist reminded him of his folly. There was a presence at the darkened archway. There was a thin shadow leaning in the dimness, standing with hands folded across his chest, breathing at him. The Sufi.
0: It seems like your novels come out of questions. Like, what is it that so fascinates you about these, what would otherwise be footnotes in history? The
2: reason why you turn to fiction rather than historical analysis Is because there's room for the imagination to grow there, you know, to take root there, to flourish there. And it brings us back to the idea of the title of the bar, which is the primal point. He took this title to himself, which is so closely associated with the actual art of calligraphy, the dipping of the reed pen into the ink and the first touch of that pen tip, on the paper and that blob of ink, which if you're a master calligrapher, you're able to drag out to perfection for the first letter of the first word. And this is really so much the symbolism of what the barb was talking about, was that from this seed of his message was going to grow this mighty, mighty tree Mm -hmm. that would shelter and overshadow all mankind. What we were seeing at that point was just that first drop of ink that first seed, in which you don't see the tree at Mm. all. But I just find it so fascinating that these tiny little details can, if you pull on them, if you tug them a little bit, it's like thread. You know, you pull it a little bit and more comes and more comes. And it's a whole story can unfold from just that one little knot.
0: So your third novel, The Woman Who Read Too Much, begins with the attempted assassination On the shah yes and it's a story about two mothers
2: well in a way it was a story about four women (laughs) because there's mother daughter sister and wife so the book is actually divided into four in a way you're right because it's contrasting this figure i call the poetess with this very powerful woman at the time that tara was alive there was the mother of the Shah. Mm-hmm. So looking at it from a historical point of view, you have a period of history where you've got this astonishing clash between, on the one hand, a political woman, the mother of the Shah, who's incredibly clever, very manipulative and shrewd, and frustrated because of the conditions of the time and the limits to her power. So she has to work through her son and work through the Grand Vizier and work through the other courtiers and, and Darun and so forth. And at the same time, in the same place, in the same country, you've got this other woman who is a character in my book I call the poetess. I was inspired by the figure of Tahere, this remarkable woman who came from a clerical background, her family were all ecclesiastics, who then broke with that world entirely and became really the voice of change and so powerful she was in her world that she influenced not only the women, but had a huge impact on the men around her. So I was trying to tell the story of this woman. How do I tell that story when history doesn't actually give us much to go by? So it's again, another story of gaps. Mm. So I was looking at the emptiness to try and piece together who Tare was. So I thought of doing it with different points of view. Because again, what literature allows you to do is to look at enigmas in a way that history has more difficulty with. It allows you to have contradictions and paradoxes. So I brought these four different points of view of different women at that time to bear on this central black hole of who on earth was this woman who was on the one hand a mother and a daughter, a sister and a wife, but broke with all those rules.
0: So maybe we can hear a reading, but just before that, What inspired you really to write this book?
2: One of the stories that one comes across in this wonderful sacred history called The Dawnbreakers, which is telling us about the period of the Bab and his disciples, is a story about the wife of the Kalantar, who was the mayor of Tehran. And the last three and a half years of her life, Tahir is spent under the roof of the mayor under house arrest. She was not allowed to go out, but as time went on, more and more of the flower of female society flocked to see her. She became more and more attractive and popular and had an enormous influence on her contemporaries during that period. The wife of the Kalanta fell completely under her spell and became a devotee, never identifying herself with her beliefs, but absolutely adoring her and making sure that she was comfortable and doing everything she needed and meeting whoever she wanted and so forth. We see there's a little episode at the end of the story when we come, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but the tragic end of Tara's life. She knows that the time has come and there is this massacre going on in the town because, as you pointed out, the story of the woman who read too much begins with the first attempt on the life of the Shah, And it ends effectively with, although it brings up that story right from the beginning, you end with a reminder of the actual assassination of Nasruddin Shah. So the 50-year period of his reign is being covered in this story, and you're weaving backwards and forwards in time to get that story. So during the attempt on the life of the Shah, there is a carte blanche for a wholesale massacre of the Babis in Tehran. Everybody is being rounded up and killed. Tara prepares herself for this and she prepares the wife of the Kalantar by doing two very important things. The first thing she does is she gives her a package. The second thing is that she gives her a key to her casket. The key to her casket, she says, everything in this belongs to you. And when you open it and you see these things, you will remember me. And inside there are some rings there is some perfume and there are very personal things of that kind. The package, we have no idea what it contains. And this is one of those enigmas, you know, what was in that package? And the wife of the Kalontar has this sentence that she says, first of all, Tare says, three days after my death, a woman will come to the door, give her this package. And when the woman comes to the door, the wife of the Kalantas says, three days after she died, a woman came to the door. I gave her the package. And then she comes up with this fascinating sentence, which I brooded on. She says, I had never seen her before and I never saw her again. I found myself looking at those words and asking myself, was she speaking the truth or was she lying? She was lying maybe to protect herself. She didn't want to say that she had seen this woman before because, God forbid, if she did, she would be the next person being hounded into the street and killed. On the other hand, how could she have not seen that person before if she had opened her doors to whoever Tare wanted to see? Mm. And Tare was communicating with the Barbies. And there was one of them who was the one who was being communicated with. And if she was going to give a package to that person, it would have been a trusted person. So how would the wife of the Kaluntan maybe not know who she was at all? And if you want to know what's in the package, how could it be anything else but books? I mean, that's my solution. So then I started thinking, well, if there were books in this package, what would they be? and so I'll read a little bit about She escapes and her father discovers she's gone, and he goes into the library. How empty the library was after her going. Her father stayed in there, touching the spines of the books, caressing the pages she used to read to him. He lingered the whole day in there after her escape, murmuring and weeping. How he missed the sound of her voice, her chanting. How he deplored the silence in the Anderoon. She had taken her pen case with her and her reeds, but it was only after several hours had passed that he noticed the gaps on the shelves. She had chosen carefully. She had selected only the most important to her, and the spaces where the books used to be mocked him teased him with his ignorance of their titles he had the impression that if he could only remember which ones she had chosen he might be able to trace where she had gone but try as he might he couldn't summon those texts to memory nor retain why it was that they had been so important to his daughter he recalled their passionate arguments about them he remembered their differing interpretations of them But the substance of the books, which were the pivot of their talks, eluded him. He realised that those gaps on the library shelves bore witness to his greatest loss of all. For without the knowledge of what had once lain on them, the mind, as well as the body of his beloved daughter, had slipped between his fingers.
1: So there's a very interesting matter we still have to address, which is really the purpose of the Bab's coming was to prepare the way for him whom God shall make manifest, who Baha'is believed to be Baha'u'llah. But it wasn't just that the Bab was a John the Baptist kind of herald.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He has the same yeah. station. He, in a sense, is the living embodiment of all the qualities and attributes of God and a, a channel mm-hmm. for the word of God. And yet, Baha'u'llah enamoured with the bāb.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Baha'u'llah begins by being a follower of the bāb. And in his writings, he says he's the king of the messengers. His book is the mother, the mother book.
2: Well, yes. no, I think that there's part of the mystery of not being able to really talk about the bāb alone without referring to Baha'u'llah is because if you only talk about the bāb, it's a tragedy. If you speak about the bāb and you realise the relationship that he had with Baha'u'llah, everything is resolved Mm. it's as if the bab is the question and baha'u'llah is the answer and it's this dialogue between the two of them this is what captures us this is what captivates our hearts there is this symbolic call and answer and that's why it's difficult to see them separate because if it weren't for the bab the power and glory of that answer and that affirmation that baha'u'llah brings wouldn't be there. It's almost as if the barb story is all that pent-up energy and anguish and tension and yearning that then finds itself resolved as the wave flows down. It's strange, but you have to almost see it in motion.
1: The barb also must have known that he really only had six years to do this That's in. right. Behold, I had 40 years. Yes. So it seems like the barb's just this great outpouring of... You could say it's almost rhapsodising at times. Yes. It's, it's mystical, it's magical, it's talismanic. If someone was to say, today, we clearly know what the Baha'i teachings are, but what would the Baha'i be teachings? Teachings, yes. It's really not so much about the teachings. Mm. It's about setting the stage, creating the environment in which this new thing could grow. And so it was just this sort of extraordinary turning of the soil, if you like. You're going to start planting something and you want it to take root. You have to plough everything Everything
2: up. up. I think that brings it right back to our times and the relevance of remembering him 200 years later. The soil is still being turned, you know. Mm. The cutworm forgives the (laughs) plough, Blake said, and we are the cutworm because we know this plough is doing something tremendously important for the future. You know, one of the things which fascinates me about the story of the barb is that you see all this happening in a nutshell in this tiny godforsaken nowhere place on the other side of the planet, which most of the centers of power are ignoring and shrugging off. Here in this environment, suddenly something happens. And 200 years later, when we look at our own society and we see how much we're in turmoil, all the absolutes that we've taken for granted, thrown up in the air, questioned from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And we realise that that same note that was struck then in Shiraz, that shaking is being reverberating 200 years later in all of the planet. I mean, we're all being shaken and we're all having to answer that question. Why is this happening? What's behind this? Tempest. What is the source of it? Who was the cause of it? Is there a reason for it? And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so profoundly important for us to focus on the Bab at this time and to realise how important he is for the future of humanity.